Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Out of all the churches listed in Revelation 2 and 3, the church at Philadelphia is one of the more encouraging churches to read about. Here was a church that was faithful to Jesus Christ. Here was a church that was faithful to His Word. Bible's open once again this morning to Revelation chapter 3. So we're going to break this message into two different weeks. Part one is this morning, and we are going to make it through verse 9. And then next week, it's going to continue to build right off of this text, and it will finish up next week. So if you cannot be here next week, you are going to miss the icing on the cake. And I want to encourage you to listen to the second part online because it just continues to build off the foundation that we are setting this morning off of the text that we will cover. There's some beautiful truth coming up in this section of the Word of God. William Carey, the cobbler, in his little workshop, if you know the history about him, it could be found the tools of the trade. There'd be a book or two a Bible, maybe a Dutch grammar, a copy of Captain Cook's Voyages. But the thing that would hold the attention of any visitor was the homemade paper and leather map that was up on the wall. As he sat there in cobbled shoes, William's thoughts were far away over the seas. See, William, he had met the King of Kings and he had met the Christ of salvation. And William also knew the dark and crying need for the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ in the countries overseas. And on May 31st of 1792, William Carey, he preached his famous sermon in Nottingham, England. It was this text that said, lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes. That was the text from Isaiah 54. Well, the words, the words poured forth like the waters of a fountain from the deep recesses of his soul. His message was given before a Baptist association, and it so moved the delegates of this association that a mission society was formed. This is a huge deal back in that day. A mission society was formed that awoke the church from the lethargy of a thousand years. And Carey became the first missionary. He went to India and he poured himself into the task. He went to India and he flung himself into the work at hand. He started a factory there. He, he learned a dozen languages. That's no small task. A dozen languages. He sounded forth the gospel of Jesus Christ across the land. He built the finest college in the country. He produced a brilliant translation of the Bible. He hired on missionaries. He hammered at India's heart. His understanding of Jesus Christ had given birth to the work of God among the people of India. This is kind of where things begin in Revelation chapter 3, where we look to the message given to the church at Philadelphia. 
The saints are given a vision of the righteousness of the king. He is holy. He is true. God is so holy that Isaiah tells us the seraphim before him hide their faces. They hide their faces in their wings. God is so dependable that man can stake everything on his word, his entire life on the word of God. The saints are given a vision of the resources in Revelation 3, of the resources of the king. He has the key of David. Christ opens a a door that no man can shut and shuts a door that no man can open. He is sovereign in all his ways. This is the king of kings that we meet in our text this morning. Verse 7 starts by telling us, it says in the word of God, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says, he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Philadelphia, it was an interesting place, interesting town. It was the most modern of all the seven cities listed in these chapters. It had been first built sometime after 189 B.C., It is thought that it was built by Attalus II, the king of Pergamum. It was built as a tribute of his loyalty to his older brother. And I think that most of us know that the two Greek words that make up the name Philadelphia literally mean brotherly love. This city was built for a specific reason, a very specific reason. You see, it was not built for the military. It wasn't built to be a fortress, or it was not built to protect the land around it from invaders. It was built for the specific reason of using this city to spread the Greek culture and the Greek language into Asia. And it worked. It worked perfectly. By the year 19 AD, the native tongue in the region had completely disappeared, and the language spoken was now Greek. But I think the Lord Jesus Christ looked at this city differently. I think he had a different plan. See, I think the Lord viewed it as a strategic center to be used to spread his gospel, his word, the gospel of truth. Now, the city of Philadelphia had one major problem, one major drawback. It might be something that you can relate to here. Philadelphia was built where the volcanoes were active and the earthquakes were frequent. They liked to roll a little bit there. There was a plus side to all of this because all of the volcanic ash on the plains made the grounds really rich, made the grounds fertile for growing grapes, which led to the production of wine. But on the downside, on the downside, these earthquakes were devastating, very devastating. In 17 AD, there was a great earthquake that hit the area. And at first, it was the city of Sardis that was the hardest hit. But Philadelphia was closer to the epicenter of the earthquake. And the aftershocks, they just kept rolling and hitting, hitting Philadelphia one after another. You guys remember that feeling just last year after the large earthquake that we had here when for days the aftershocks just kept coming one after another after another. It's an unsettling feeling to be sure. Same thing happened at Philadelphia. After the initial earthquake, the aftershocks were so violent, they said enough of this because the aftershocks just kept on coming. So the entire population of the city moved outside of the city for a time. They built themselves some temporary huts to live under rather than even attempting to rebuild their homes. 
Now, one more thing I want to get into before we move into our text, because this is where they grew grapes and because this is where they made wine. Who do you think was the God that they worshipped? Dionysus, the God of wine. That's who they worshipped. But what becomes interesting about this is who they did not worship. In some of these cities that we have looked at in Revelation 2 and 3, we have pointed out that the people were very, very dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor. But this was not one of those cities. And there's a reason for this. In fact, the people of Philadelphia actually went about their business of discouraging others from worshiping the Roman emperor. And the reason was very simple. You see, what did they do for a living? We just said it. They grew grapes, right? They made wine. This was their business. This is how they earned a living. It always comes back to money. But when Domitian was the emperor of the Roman Empire towards the end of the first century, there was a food shortage, especially in the city of Rome. It had caused riots from the slave population. So Domitian came along and he forced the people of this region in 92 AD to cut down at least half of the vineyards and start planting corn. This was supposed to help the food shortage. But what it did to the people of this region was make their prosperity disappear. They made a lot less money growing corn for the government than they did making wine. And so there was no way these people were going to worship the Roman emperor. Now, Christ is addressing the church at Philadelphia. This church, along with the church at Smyrna, was one of the only two churches that we do not see that Christ offered a single word of criticism. Notice how Christ describes himself. He says, these things says he who is holy, he who is true. Now, this is a beautiful description of God. This is a beautiful description of, of who he is. Holy testifies that he is free from sin. This is an attribute of deity. You see, in Jesus Christ, absolute purity is on display. Christ is reminding the church of his deity. He who is true. This speaks of the absolute reality. The wording means that which is genuine. Those that were clinging to the shadows of the Jewish faith, they needed to be reminded that reality and truth can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. When men and women are confronted by Jesus Christ, they are confronted by truth itself. Christ is truth. Christ is true to his word and can be trusted to keep his promises to us. Now here comes an important statement in verse 7. Watch carefully. It says, he who has the key of David. Our text in Revelation 3, this phrase, he who has the key of David, is a quote from Isaiah. Take a look at verse 22 of Isaiah chapter 22. It says the key of, watch the difference, the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder so he shall open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one shall open. Now this is all quoted by Jesus Christ back in verse 7 of Revelation 3 with one important difference. See the words here in Isaiah 22, the house of, they're not quoted by Christ in Revelation chapter 3. They're not there. But instead, it just records in Revelation, he who has the key of David. Subtle difference, small difference, you may say, but actually a very, very important difference. 
You see, in this passage in Isaiah 22, Shebna was the steward of King Hezekiah's house. But because of his pride and arrogance, Shebna had to be removed from that position. And he was replaced by the faithful steward Eliakim. This is the context of verse 22, where the text records the key of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder. Now Eliakim had the responsibility of guarding the the treasure that was entrusted to his care. He was given a key that would open up the vault. He had the authority to open it. The key was a symbol of the trust, of the confidence that was given to him. And this Old Testament passage is used and it points forward to Jesus Christ. Why? Because God the Father has now invested his faithful steward, God the Son, with the symbol of authority. In other words, here's what I'm digging at. Here's what I'm telling you. Any Jew reading this would immediately recognize something, that Christ was claiming the right of the Messiah. And this is what it means back in Revelation 3, the key of David, the authority of David. We're going to see in Revelation 5, 5 that it teaches us that Christ is the root of David. Revelation 22, 16 teaches Christ is the root and offspring of David. The kingdom authority was entrusted to Jesus Christ. Christ is showing us that he holds the key to the messianic promises. Christ is claiming his sovereignty over the church. Now follow this part closely. Remember that before we said in Revelation 3, the words, the house of, were left off of the quote of Isaiah 22. In Isaiah 22, it just spoke of the key of the house of David. This was something that was limited to the nation of Israel. But in Revelation 3, without the words, the house of, the change is significant because the intent is to show that the messianic promises are not limited to just Israel, meaning the messianic promises are for both Jews and Gentiles. Do you see the difference? During the Battle of Britain in World War II, night and day, the enemy bombers flew in across the English Channel to unload their cargoes of death and destruction on the cities and the villages below. And the Royal Air Force of Britain, they were putting up a good fight. And Winston Churchill would later mention what the world owed to the group of men who flew their battered hurricanes and spitfires against horrific odds when he said this, and you may have heard this quote from history. He said, never before in the field of human conflict have so many owed so much to so few. In one lonely outpost of the Royal Air Force, a group of fighter pilots were gathered together in the mess hall. And these men were worn out, absolutely worn out with fatigue. They were dirty. Their eyes were tired. You know what tired feels like. They were there. They were just trying to get a moment, one moment to relax before climbing back into their planes to fight off more Nazi planes. But just then, an an alarm sounded and a voice came over the intercom from the operations room. Bandits at 15,000 feet over P-25. And so the pilots jumped to their feet, racing for the runways. But one squadron leader paused to shout back into the intercom, message received and understood. Listen to me. This one small change may not seem like much to you. 
This one small change from Isaiah 22 in our text without the words, the house of. You see, the intent is to show us that the messianic promises are not just limited to the nation of Israel, meaning the messianic promises are for both Jews and Gentiles. This is a message that would have been received and understood by this church living on the front lines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 9 is going to teach us that the problem in Philadelphia was the Jews who had rejected the Christ. They denied that Jesus is the Messiah, and they would have taught that they alone had access to the future kingdom of David. In their way of thinking, in the way they looked at it, it wasn't for the followers of Jesus to enter into the kingdom, into this future kingdom of God. It was only for the Jews. So Jesus Christ is proclaiming something here. He's saying that the truth is just the opposite. He is the genuine Messiah, the only Messiah. And when he comes in all his glory to set up his kingdom on earth, he will open the doors to his kingdom for those who believe in him. And he will close the doors to his kingdom to those that reject him. And for the Gentiles in the church at Philadelphia, they came from a completely different background. And their lost understanding and their pagan understanding of things. The pagan god Janus was the key bearer. To them, the god Janus held the power to open the year, which is where the month January comes from. And it is why it opens the year as the first month of the year. Janus was said to be the one who was thought to be able to open and shut the gates of heaven. Janus was thought to be the one to open and shut the gates of war and peace on earth. Christ presents himself as the one with absolute authority. No pagan deity could claim his power or position. And so back in Revelation 3, looking at the last part of verse 7, we read, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. This is still pulling from that same text in Isaiah 22. So just follow the thought, stick with it. The point with this part of the verse is not on the possession of the key, but the use of the key. Doors are to be opened or closed and no one can interfere with the judgment of the one who holds the key. Meaning Christ is the one with the final word. So back in Isaiah 22, let's set this back in its context for just a second. Eliakim had the key to all the treasures of the king. He is the one that had access to all these treasures of the king. When he opened a door, it was opened. When he closed the door, it was closed. And to the church at Philadelphia, Christ assures them that he has the power to open and close the doors of his kingdom. So take a look at verse 8. He says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. And no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. I believe that the context of verse 7 is clear from the quote of Isaiah 22, that Christ is testifying that he alone has the power to open and shut the doors to his kingdom. But verse 8, it shifts a little bit. Verse 8 shifts a little. And verse 8 is about how Christ shares his power with his church. We read again that Christ is omniscient. He knew their works. But notice this. I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. Now, 
Many would say that this is speaking of opportunities to share the gospel, opportunities for missions, because this is the way the idea of open doors are used in other passages. Let me just give you one example. Over in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, where Paul said this, it it reads, For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if you take that position in Revelation, that's great. That's more than fine. I'm not going to argue with you on that. But the more I look at this passage, the more I don't think this is what Jesus Christ was actually teaching, because it's not the context, and it's not the subject at hand. The subject clearly defined from verse 7 and from Isaiah 22 is what? It's the messianic kingdom of God. It's the messianic kingdom of God. Speaking to those with life in Christ, speaking to those that belong to him, Christ was promising an entrance into his kingdom. This was the great encouragement. This was the great promise to God's people. No one, not even those of the synagogue of Satan, could shut them out. See, Jesus alone can take us into the Father's house. Do you hear that? Jesus alone can take us in to the Father's house. This is here because the Jews who rejected Christ would certainly come along and tell any Gentile that there was no way they could take part in the coming messianic kingdom. Christ proclaims they absolutely would if they had saving faith in him. You see, the point of the text is to tell us that the Lord Jesus Christ controls access to the Davidic kingdom. And if he speaks of an open door in the same breath that he refers to that same kingdom, I believe the intent of God is that he is talking about entrance into that kingdom. Christ is promising the church that they'll be delivered from the Jews that were persecuting them. And this would come about at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, the last part of verse 8. For you have, what? A little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. This goes back to a description of their works. They had little strength. Probably meant to tell us that this was a small church. Small in numbers, but they kept his word, and they did not deny Jesus Christ. Now, I, for one, would rather be a part of a church like this, a small church, a church that is faithful to the word of God, rather than a large church today with watered-down doctrine where the word of God is not taught. This church at Philadelphia had gone through some trials. They had gone through some persecution. And no doubt that the Jews wanted them to deny the teachings of Christ, to deny Christ himself, just as many today would like us as Christians to walk away from Christ and to deny his word. The Christians at Philadelphia guarded and kept the truth of God. They they had not departed from the faith, the faith that had been handed down by the apostles of Jesus Christ. To keep the word of Christ is to obey the words of Christ. See, when a church begins to deal loosely with the word of Christ, it will sooner or later deny the name of Christ. The name of a person stands for his character, his position, his work, all that he is, all that he does. And so what I'm telling you is that the concept here of the name of Christ, it is critically important in the Bible because it represents who he is. One who honors the name of Christ is one who receives the great salvation provided by his substitutionary atonement and resurrection. And it is one who acknowledges he is our high priest. He is our king. 
And so watch verse 9. It builds right off of this. It says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. The Jewish believers who rejected the Messiah were a constant thorn in the side for the first century church. They were trusting in their biological link to Abraham rather than on having that faith that Abraham demonstrated. When people, hear me, when people trust in anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation, they're on the wrong side of God. They're on the wrong side of the gospel. You see, the unbelieving Jews trusted their own teaching over the word of God. Boy, is that a danger in the church today. They had become enemies of the gospel. They had become a synagogue of Satan because they allowed themselves to be deceived by Satan himself. They were liars, is what God says in the rejection of Christ. If the Jews weren't busy directly persecuting Christians themselves, they were causing others, causing others to oppose the Christian faith. The synagogue of Satan were were the Jews who worshipped in the synagogue, claiming to be the true Israel. This is how God feels about any group of people attempting to worship him, not based on faith, but based on their works, on what they as men can do for God. They are led by Satan, not by the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 2 teaches us this, a very important truth. It says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but he is a Jew who is one, what? Inwardly. And circumcision is where? Is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but who? From God. Meaning a Jew who is one who has been forgiven, forgiven by the atoning sacrifice of the Messiah, the only true Messiah, Jesus the Christ. God alone has the right to determine what it means to be his people. Do you hear that? God alone has the right to determine what it means to be his people. And faith is of the heart, not just a matter of trying to earn God's love. You cannot earn God's love, so quit trying. You cannot reject Christ and his people and then turn around and claim to be the people of God. Revelation 3.9 is teaching us that Satan himself is the source of all persecution in this world. Christians, you'd better understand this concept. You better wake up and understand this concept because I've been telling the church of Jesus Christ for 25 years now that it is coming. And if you don't see it coming, I think you're blind. Because right now, the church of Jesus Christ in the West is being sifted and challenged like few other times in the last 75 years. And you have to decide what side of the gospel, what side of the word of God you are on. Is the church of Jesus Christ essential or not? I say it is. Satan will bring his persecution against the people of God, but there's a beautiful promise here, such a beautiful promise at the end of the verse where it says, and I will make them come and worship before your feet to know, to know that I have what? Loved you. I believe this is a very important reference to the future repentance of the nation of Israel, the future salvation of the nation of Israel. This is the direction of the verses that follow. The return of Jesus Christ, which is when this repentance will come during the messianic kingdom of Christ. See, the people of Israel then will have a completely different attitude towards the church. They will recognize that the church is the bride of Christ. They will recognize the love of Jesus Christ for his church. Because at that time, they will also have turned to Christ. 
What we have to understand is that the seven years, the coming seven years of tribulation, it's the 70th week of Daniel chapter 9. The primary purpose has nothing to do with the church. It is to bring the people of the nation of Israel to repentance because no lost person can offer up to God true worship. But men and women of Israel who place their trust in Christ for salvation will worship Christ and they will respect and give honor to the church of Christ. They will acknowledge that the church in that day is made up of the true servants of God. See, the Lord Jesus Christ was teaching that the Jews may reject him now. They may reject Christ now, but the day is coming when that's going to change and they will no longer reject the bride of Christ. You may want to jot down Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, speaking of the nation of Israel. Let's read it. It says, And it shall come to pass in all the lands, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. One-third of the nation of Israel will call on the name of the Lord for salvation. This is the surviving remnant of Israel at the end of the tribulation, purified and brought to faith by the persecutions of the tribulation. They will call on the Lord in faith, become a restored nation. But there's an amazing truth here in the word of God. Turn, if you would, if you're following along in your Bible, to a prophecy in Isaiah 60, verse 14. Now keep in mind, this prophecy is about Jews who will trust in Christ. Isaiah 60, we'll look to verse 14 and watch what it says. Also the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you, and all those who despised you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. This is the millennial reign of Christ. This is after the second coming of Christ. Every Gentile in the world will recognize that Jerusalem is God's chosen city, that this is where God the Son will live, will dwell, will rule from. He will reign from Jerusalem. Now I want you to stop and think about this with me. This was written as a promise. This was written as a prophecy to the Jews to let them know that even though they were despised and even though they were rejected by the Gentiles, the day will come during the millennial reign of the Messiah when the Gentile nations will come and give honor to the Jews. The day will come when the nations that had once persecuted the Jews, when those nations which had wanted to bring about an end to the Jews and the end of the nation of Israel, they will recognize Jerusalem as God. God's city, this prophecy will be fulfilled. But flip back to our passage in Revelation and notice the wording again at the end of verse 9. It says, Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now, if you're tracking with me, it sure sounds a lot like Isaiah 60, verse 14. But the difference, and this is key, the difference is that here in Revelation 3, Christ is speaking to a church that is predominantly Gentiles and telling them that one third of the nation of Israel will come to know him. They too will worship him and they will recognize the church as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ the remnant of believing Jews 
after the tribulation will one day know of Christ's love for his church because they belong to him. See, unbelieving Hebrews scoffed at the claim of the Christians at Philadelphia that they were objects of God's genuine love. But that will change one day when Israel repents. The lesson is that no matter how powerful and violent the opposition that comes our way, no matter how much the world tries to shut down the work of God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the end, when Christ returns, there will be victory. Philippians 2 teaches us that the day will come that what? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember the flood in Noah's day? Noah did not build that ark overnight. It took him decades, decades to build the ark. And while he was working away at it, he warned people of God's anger, and he warned them of the coming flood. 2 Peter 2.5 calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. Those who heard Noah... The people he preached to, they ignored him and even mocked his words. Then came the time when the ark was finished. Noah and his family and all the animals were inside of the ark. And at that point, according to Genesis 7, 16, God shut the door of the ark. Then the rains came. The waters began to rise. And I can't help but wonder sometimes that some of the people, they didn't rush to that ark hoping they could get in when they realized that Noah's prophecies, they were true. But if they did make their way to the ark, I know what they found. I know exactly what they found. They found that the door had been closed. Even if they beat on the door with their fists until their knuckles bled, even if they tried to pry it open or use a big log as a battering ram against it, God had shut the door to the ark. If they looked for a window, they didn't find one. The door had been closed. Do you remember the Passover? Do you remember the Passover lamb in Egypt? God had instructed Moses that the last plague was going to involve death of the firstborn children in the land. So God told Moses to have the Israelites spread the blood of the lamb around the door frames of their homes. So when the Lord came, he would pass over their house. And Exodus 12, 12 records... For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the Lord did come. And he passed over the homes where the blood had been applied, but he visited every home where there was no lamb's blood. And sometimes I wonder about the panic of the Egyptians at that point, the screaming of the people as they found their firstborn dead, realizing that something terrible, something awful was taking place that night. I wonder how many of them cried out for help, but it would have been no use. Once again, Exodus 12 records, And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captives who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. If you read scripture long enough, you'll see that there is a common thread throughout it, a warning concerning salvation. 
See, once God shuts the door to salvation, it is shut. And right now, what is God doing? Well, he is bringing a people to himself. But whether he closes the door to salvation by our individual death or by Christ's return, it really doesn't matter because once it's closed, it's absolutely closed forever. And there will be some here. There will be some here, maybe even here, some here today who sat among us, who pretended to be a Christian, pretended to be one of us, but never tasting the power of God, the power of new life in Jesus Christ that comes by simple faith in his death and resurrection. And when the door of salvation shuts, no amount of pleading with God will change the outcome of those who are shut out from eternal life with him. Have you ever heard of the Sahara race? It's known as the toughest race in the world. It's 251 kilometers across the Sahara Desert. As runners make their way through Mali, Niger, Libya, and Egypt, now, this race is so difficult that runners have to sign a form stating, stating where their body should be placed in the event of a death. It involves six marathons over six days, and you have to carry everything you need from toilet paper to food. Don't forget the toilet paper. 30% drop out in the first few days. People die running this race. The afternoons get over 100 degrees. The nights are very, very cold. They face sandstorms, violent sickness, and the never-ending thirst for water. Now, crossing the Sahara Desert on foot in six days, that's an amazing accomplishment. It truly is. But that's not impressive to me. That's foolishness in my mind. What's impressive to me are the Christians, hear me, are the Christians who finish the race set before them. Christians who man up in life and finish their lives still growing, still serving Jesus Christ. Husbands and wives staying faithful to each other until death do us part. Young people staying pure until marriage because they want to honor Jesus Christ. Pastors, pastors who stay passionate about ministry until their last breath. That's a challenge. Members of the church who go through the rough patches in the church life and remain faithful the whole time, joyful and still loving Jesus Christ. Know that Christians in the days ahead, if you hold to the word of God and if you refuse to deny the name of Jesus Christ, you're going to take the brunt of the storm. You absolutely are. But the message of revelation to the church is hold on, hold on tight, trust his strength Trust his timing. Keep contending for the faith. Keep serving Christ. Keep serving one another. Don't lose heart because soon the battle will be over and we will be home safe with our Lord. Hebrews 12 tells us, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Christian, look unto Jesus, knowing that the, this time that we are here on this life, in this earth, it is short. So finish the race that's been set before you because it's different for each one of us. Be unashamed of the faith, resting on the strength of Jesus Christ in your life. Finish strong, looking to the day when our Savior returns. 
Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.